The best, the best summer of my life was spent living and working on a dude ranch in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Amazing. My good friend Chris, we were fraternity brothers, he had this crazy idea at the end of our time at Ohio State together that instead of getting internships or um, setting ourselves up for graduate school or the workforce that was right around the corner, that we would sort of play hooky on all of those adult responsibilities looming in the distance. He had a connection with this dude ranch in the heart of the Teton Mountains, the Triangle X Ranch. We put our applications in, and wouldn't you know, we were hired to be a part of their summer staff. And so Chris and I loaded up his Saturn sedan, and we drove out to Wyoming, and we would spend the whole summer living and working on this beautiful ranch. There were two types of employees on the ranch, real cowboys and cowgirls that lived and worked there full time, and then a whole slew of college kids like Chris and I who were summer help. I had the um, honoring job of being the ranch dishwasher. And so after every meal, I would wash the dishes. Chris had this, um, this job that I was envious of. He learned when we arrived that he would be a cookout cook. And he and two other guys would load up this old uh, 90-something Chevy full of barbecue and brisket, and they would drive it up to a vista or a mountaintop or down by the river, and they would cook early in the morning or late in the afternoon so that the families that were vacationing on the ranch, they would ride their horses to the location to have this beautiful breakfast. We lived and worked on a vacationing ranch. It's a historic ranch that dates back to the 1920s. Um, it's been in famous Western movies like Shane or Spencer's Mountain. Any cowboy fans out there? Cowboy movie fans? Same ranch. Well, the benefit of Chris being a cookout cook is that he got to learn all of the trails and the back roads and, and the beautiful overlooks that had the best uh, scenic images of the Teton Mountains. And so when Chris and I had all of our work done for the day, all of the dishes were cleaned and put away, we would often escape away together. We'd load up that pickup truck with some food and a cooler full of our favorite beverages, and we would go build a campfire underneath the stars of Wyoming. Have you ever seen the Wyoming stars at night? Absolutely gorgeous. And it would be there at the top of this uh, hill or mountaintop that we would dream about the future of our lives, what we wanted to do in the world, where God was calling us. You see, actually, Chris and I, when we first met, we weren't great friends. We actually didn't even care for one another. We were both members of the same fraternity, but we sort of butted heads when we met, Chris was a varsity lacrosse player at The Ohio State University, and I thought he was full of himself, this varsity athlete, always talking about his, you know, accomplishments on the athletic field. And I was this student soldier who also had an ego problem. And it wasn't until we both went through a reforming, a reshaping of our identities that we bonded and connected we went through this at a similar time. I was deployed in Iraq. I've shared some of that story with all of you. 
And all of that could be summarized as a great reformation of how I viewed myself. I was deployed being really prideful and arrogant around being this soldier. I wanted to become a man myself. I, I was so wrapped up in, in, in how the world defines success. And that deployment reformed and reshaped my identity away from those things and more towards my baptismal identity as a child of God. And at the same time that I was deployed, Chris suffered a career-ending injury on the lacrosse field. So Chris was struggling with some of the same things that, that I was. His identity could no longer be wrapped up in his athletic achievements. And when I came home from the war and we were back at the fraternity, we, we actually recognized that we had more in common than we ever thought. Over the course of that summer, our good friend Mitchell decided to drive out. Mitchell had just graduated from Ohio State, and he wanted to visit us in Wyoming. And when Mitchell arrived, we decided to take him up to our favorite overlook and build a campfire one night. And this memory is like a core memory for me. I think it will forever be seared into my mind. Maybe you have those memories for yourself. Mitchell was actually entering the army as I was just getting out of the army. And so this was the last trip Mitchell was going to take before he had to ship off to basic training. And as we sat around that campfire that night, Mitchell started waxing poetically about why he was joining the military. Can you imagine this scene? Three young guys with the future in front of them, the stars flickering, and, and here goes Mitchell. I don't just want to be a soldier, guys. I'm going to be the best soldier there's ever been. What are you talking about, Mitchell? Well... I haven't told anyone yet, but the Army recruiter awarded me a special forces contract. And so after basic training, I've already been pre-selected to go to the special forces selection camp. And I'm going to become a Green Beret. Mitchell went on to tell us how his uncle was a Green Beret, a special forces operative, and that this was Mitchell's destiny. And there were Chris and I saying, yeah, Mitchell... You can do it. Mitchell, you've got what it takes. Hey, Mitchell, I've been in the army. I can see you doing that. You're not just going to be a soldier. You're going to be the best soldier ever. And then we turned to Chris. Chris already had a job lined up with Dow Chemical, this great sales job. He was soon going to move to Philadelphia. And, and Chris, what about your future? What are you excited about? And Chris stood up around the campfire, and he's pacing, and he said, I'm not just going to become a salesperson. I'm going to be the best salesperson Dow Chemical's ever seen. I said, tell us more, Chris. And Chris went on to say that he had real ambition and dreams. He said, by the time I'm 40 years old, I will be president and CEO of a major company. I don't know how I'll do it, but I'm going to do it. And along the way, I'm going to get my MBA at an Ivy League school. Whoa. Well, you know what, Chris? I, I think you're going to live an ambitious, excellent life. And then they turned to me. Well, what about you, Lorne? At that time, I knew I wanted to be a pastor, and I was feeling called into ministry. And so I said, well, I, I'm feeling called to go to seminary. I I want to be a pastor, and, and caught up in the moment and the, the spirit of these other two guys, I said, but I'm not going to be any pastor. <laughs> I, I'm going to be the best pastor there's ever been. 
Yeah. And then Chris and Mitchell, yeah, Lauren, you're going to be the best pastor. Forget Billy Graham. Here comes Lauren. (laughs) Right? I joke about that, but if I'm honest with you, that that attitude, that ethic, it, it did influence those early years of ministry for me. I wanted, I wanted to be this great example of what true servant leadership looked like. I, I kept thinking to myself, well, one day I'm going to get married and I'm going to be the best husband ever. And Becca's back there shaking her head. I don't know about that. I'm going to be the best dad there's ever been. Don't say anything, Brianna. Well, the embers of the fire as they were flickering up into the stars that night and they grew more and more dim and the sun came out. We went on with the rest of our summer and Mitchell went off to basic training and the summer ended and wouldn't you know it, right now Mitchell is a special forces operative. He's a Green Beret. He's deployed somewhere in the world. Chris left Dow Chemical after five years where he met his wife, Katie. He went to Cornell and graduated near the top of his class with his MBA. And he's president and CEO of a major manufacturing company in Pennsylvania. And I'm your pastor. (laughs) Right? That ethic of pursuing excellence, wanting to be the best, wanting, wanting to be known, wanting to accomplish. I think there's a part of us that is wired and driven to create. God is a creator, right? God forms and shapes the world and our lives, and I think we have some of that DNA. We want to create. We want to, to build things, but so often we pervert this And we make this all about the self, the ego, our own pride. And being completely truthful with you, that desire to be the best pastor, it did guide and shape some of my early years in ministry. It was underneath the surface. But it didn't take me long to realize in the actual work of ministry that being a pastor, or rather just being a Christian, is not about having all of the answers, or living a perfect life, or being a model of supreme excellence. Rather, being a person of faith is about being the first to admit to the world how we mess up, get it wrong, are screwed up, are broken, and how we need God's grace. Do you see the difference? I went into ministry thinking that to be a good pastor meant that I had to have all the theological answers. I had to live my life in this pious, perfect way. But I've come to learn that being a good pastor is when we admit that we get it so wrong. We doubt. We struggle. It's showing others that we are chief among the broken. This point for me was really reinforced and driven home in the first few years of my ministry. I had an email come through from a young woman in the congregation. She was in her second year of college. She said, Pastor Lauren, when I'm home on spring break, do you have any time to meet with me? Of course. (laughs) 
Well, of course, this young college student wants to meet with a pastor on spring break. This is awesome. What's going on in her life? And so she came in to meet with me, and we sat down in my office, and she said, Pastor Lauren, I, I want to talk about why bad things happen to good people. Have you ever asked that question? And there I was with that puffed up sense of the pastor needs to have all the answers. And I said, well, thank you for asking. And I waxed poetically for about 10 minutes. All theological answers to the question. I tried to unpack for her this concept of theodicy. Why do bad things happen if there's a good and loving God? And I was just talking and pontificating. And, and I noticed after about 10 minutes that none of it was connecting. She was just sort of slumping down in her chair looking up at me. And then it dawned on me. You buffoon. You failed to ask her, why do you ask? I was so wrapped up in what I was going to say, what I was going to do, the wisdom that I could share that I forgot to ask the human connection, connecting question. And in that moment, tears welled up in her eyes and she began to cry. And now I really don't know what to do. I'm a freshman pastor and none of my answers are working and now this young girl's crying in my office. And she said, I had a doctor's visit this semester. I've been experiencing some health problems and the doctor shared with me after a series of tests that I will never be able to have children. She said, I'm just a college student. I, I don't want to have kids right now, but I always thought I would be a mother. I always dreamed that I would one day get married and give birth. The rest of our time together, I don't think we talked any theology. We wept together. We cried together. Her vulnerability gave me permission to also share about the moments in my life that I've shaken my fists at God, doubted, questioned. I wrestled with my faith. You see, I've come to learn through so many circumstances and situations that to be a person of faith, to be a follower of Jesus in this real, modern, confusing world we live in is less about living a perfect life, resting on all of our theological platitudes, and it's more about admitting our need for hope, the yearning of our hearts. In Matthew chapter 21, our story for today, Jesus is trying to reinforce this point for his disciples. The way of humility should be what marks a disciple of Christ. So often we get puffed up like the scribes or the elders with all of our obsession over authority and having the answers, knowing what's right or wrong according to our own mind, that we fail to see the humble, simple way of responding to what God is doing. Jesus here lifts up two types of people, the scribes and the elders, the religious elite that pretend as if they know what's right. They are the, 
they are the jury and the judge over other people's lives, over and against the tax collectors and prostitutes, the Gentiles, those the rest of the world looks past and looks over. Jesus explains this parable about two sons to hit home a really simple point. Don't be people that are so focused on saying the right thing, but not living your life with the ethic of love and humility. Rather, live your life in a manner worthy of the grace you have received. Martin Luther was fond of saying, there are not good people and bad people in the world. We are both, at the same time, saint and sinner. Right? Amen. Look at someone next to you and say, you are a saint. And now look at him and say, and you're a sinner. Why'd you all say that one louder? Luther, Luther believed it wasn't good and bad. He believed the primary lens through which we're to view ourselves is proud and humble. If you were to read through the scriptures and comb through the gospels, you would see that when Jesus has a prophetic challenging word for people, it's not because they're bad, evil people. It's because they're too proud. But Jesus always lifts up the humble, the meek, the lowly, As we kick off this focus on God reforming, reshaping our lives, we do so with a very simple message. Following Jesus, if we truly want to follow in his footsteps and not just give lip service to God, well, it means that our egos get reformed, reshaped. You know, isn't it interesting that we don't call ourselves leaders of Jesus? We don't say that, do we? You've never heard that said. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I I believe in God. I'm a leader of Jesus. It's I'm a follower of Jesus. Which means that we embrace the way of humility. We embrace the way of love to say, I don't have all the answers. I'm not the leader. I'm one of many followers learning how to be gracious and forgiving, learning how to love. This week, what I want you to focus on, what I want you to think about and pray about when you're brushing your teeth in the morning and you're looking at yourself in the mirror, I want you to think about the ways that your life, unique to you, needs reformed, reshaped into the way of love and peace. You know, we don't want to be like that clump of Play-Doh that fell under the kitchen table. But Lord knows we become like that, don't we? We get hardened and stiff and it takes a little more work to, to knead us back into that state where we can be shaped. We want to be people who God can continually shape and mold and form. Let's embrace this journey together. Trusting that the reformation of our lives that God has intended is not just for our good, but it's good for the world. Amen.